It's March 14, 2009, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Before we begin, I just wanted to mention my new podcast, Shooting with Alas. It's a video podcast about photography. But unlike this show, it's more about the process of making images and telling stories. The most recent episode, which was recorded at the Santa Anita Racetrack and profiles horse trainer Eddie Truman, is an example of the path the show is going to follow. You will see a big difference between the first and second episode, and that's because this is a work in progress. But I believe we're on to something with this latest episode, and I welcome your feedback and thoughts. There is a link to the show on the Candid Frame blog page. If you like what you see, please let us know. And more importantly, help spread the word by sharing the show with your friends and fellow shutterbugs on your blog or website. Today's guest is actually two guests, Seth Joel and Charlie Holland, a husband and wife team, a first for the show. Seth comes from a family of photographers, his father being the famed life photographer Yale Joel. Charlie is a former photo editor and photo director who's worked at Premier Magazine and Getty Images. Together, they produce natural-looking images of people for commercial and advertising work, which includes a good amount of images for stock. Photography is often a solitary endeavor for the most part, and I was fascinated by the idea of interviewing a couple whose life revolves around the world of seeing and making photographs. Hearing the perspective of two unique and interesting people provided me a wonderful hour of conversation, and I hope you will enjoy it. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Seth Joel and Charlie Holland. Well, guys, thank you so much for welcoming, welcoming me into your home. I'm, I'm really excited about the opportunity to, to talk to you guys. You guys are the very first couple I've ever, ever had on the show. <laughs> That's our pleasure. <laughs> Good to meet you. Well, let's start with you, Seth. Um, looking, I saw that you know you've been shooting since you were very young, and that you came uh, up in a household um, from a photographer, not just any photographer, a, a Life magazine photographer. Tell me about um, growing up with your dad as 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 a photographer, particularly for for that magazine. Uh, well, very uh, early on. I uh, started uh, getting interested in photography because uh, there wasn't a, an evening uh, that didn't go by where we'd be looking at Polaroids or uh, talking about an assignment coming up that he was working on or meeting some of his photo assistants or, or uh, um, some of the writers that were involved with his, uh, his stories. So, um, um, you know, I was, I was completely enchanted by photography very, very early on. So I can remember um, going to a kindergarten field trip to the Bronx Zoo and carrying um, a twin lens Rolleiflex with me and shooting pictures of the swans at the, uh, at the Bronx Zoo. And then going to the life labs and processing the film with my father in these huge 
stainless steel vats. Mm-hmm. So it was a it was a, a lifestyle more than a more than a profession for him. Yeah, and it became my passion, you know, very early on. When did you kind of realize that this is what you really wanted to do with your life? I mean, as a, as a kid, you kind of do it because it's so much fun and it's so gratifying to you know to produce you know something from nothing. But when did you start thinking that you know I really want to make a go of this as my life? Um, when I was getting out of high school, by then, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Before that, I worked on the school newspapers. I, um, I actually taught underclassmen, like junior high kids, when I was a junior and senior in high school. I taught them uh, um, elementary photo classes Processing black and white film, making enlargements, uh, set up a, a whole uh, uh, course in the junior high. So by the time I got out of high school, it was pretty clear that that's what I wanted to do. Life magazine was really a bit about the the picture story. Mm-hmm. That, that was the heart. Did you find yourself primarily, you know, wanting to tell stories yourself, or were you more interested in the individual? Still, image did, did that hold more of an appeal to you, or were you really interested in telling telling stories with photographs? I um, I was more interested in the individual image, um, less about the the storytelling. Um, probably because that's what Dad did, so I wanted to uh, try and find my own way. Um, when I was uh, working in um, Probably one of the, the, the biggest, well, biggest crossroads that I had was um, after I apprenticed and I started to do museum photography, I was sent to China for a photo assignment. And war broke out on the border between Vietnam and China. And Time Magazine contacted me and they wanted me to go down there and cover it. And um, after numerous phone calls actually with them and they kept on trying to enhance the the sweeten the deal for me I finally had to say no because I had this commitment with the Met Museum but it was that was a crossroads for me because if I had taken that assignment I probably would have stayed in the the world of journalism mm. And your brother's also a photographer. Yeah. So what, what kind of work does he do? Do you guys do similar stuff, or are you very, very different? Um, he does corporate work primarily, um, on location, uh, big factories, Midwestern-style environments. Um, he's located in Chicago. And he didn't originally start out as a photographer. He wanted to be a concert pianist. And uh, after he graduated from UC, uh, University of Chicago, he uh, went to Northwestern, the conservatory, and studied for a couple of years, but realized that he was never going to be able to compete with these 12-year-olds that were winning awards and were just, you know, absolutely brilliant. So he picked up the camera and uh, started, started working, started shooting. So what kind of um, niche have you created for yourself as, as, a, photographer, as a photographer? We've interviewed a variety of different photographers from all various fields. And, you know, often, sometimes they fall into 
you know, their pocket. Other, others are more very, um, think they were, uh, well, or really think their way into going, I want to do like fashion, and that's, and that's pretty much the path that they follow. What mm-hmm. was, what was, what's your niche that you've created for yourself, and, and how well thought of was the whole process of getting there? Well, um, in the beginning, I apprenticed. I never did a art center or Brooks Institute style education. I worked with a, um, a museum photographer, a man that interpreted art objects for major publishers and museums worldwide. And after going in and out of every name museum you can think of from uh, you know Beijing to New York, um, I decided that's what I wanted to pursue. So when he retired after the, the late 70s, I took over his client base. There was very few people that were skilled doing just that kind of work. Mm-hmm. And um, I produced, along with publishers like Harry Abrams and Alfred Knopf and Simon Schuster, um, at least a dozen art books. Um, and that's how Charlie and I actually met, because uh, I was assigned by the publisher that she was working for to photograph the uh, treasures of the Maharajas. And it was a two-month project in India. And the two of us went from palace to palace. And there was a you know pretty clear shooting script. And we would set up little studios, and it was a mix of daylight and strobe, and um, photographed these objects, which turned out to be a beautiful coffee table book with maybe 120 color plates, and, and uh, it was quite an experience mm-hmm. for us. So we, that's how we first met, and... We realized uh, 25 years later that it might be a good thing to uh, um, get together again and work together yeah. because uh, you know the last couple of years we've we've uh, been very happy doing that. Yeah. And Charlie, you wh- where did you discover your passion for photography? Because I know you, your role has been primarily as sort of editor, so you're usually on the other side of the desk. Facing the photographers, so yes, and I really still can't take a picture worth it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. Um, I started off. Um, I actually uh, have a completely unrelated degree. I didn't study photography. I have a degree in African history and social anthropology. But I uh, was. Or I had a very good art education, and I was a very good researcher. And when I came to New York in 1978, someone. Um, asked me to try and help them get their pictures, uh, to get pictures for the book that they were finishing on the assassination of Kennedy. And I happened to know someone who worked at American Photographer, and I said, how do you find pictures? And he took a deep breath and and rolled his eyes and said, I think you ought to go and talk to this woman. And she turned out to be um, one of the best uh, freelance photo researcher in New York and uh, with a wide variety of clients. And she put me to work the next week. So I learned photo research through her and then went to magazines on her behalf and, and um, then the book series, and uh, I just carried on from there. So I've always been a researcher and then an assigning 
photo editor and photo director at magazines. Um, and then I came out here to Universal Studios after I'd done a stint at Premiere magazine and then went into Tony Stone. A job came up there, and um, that actually pulled it all together. Yeah. That was a very... Because there we were essentially assigning stock um, because that's what... that the, the business was growing so huge. You knew what would sell, and you knew you had to get it, and you knew you had to get it different than the way you got it two years ago because your customer waste was growing and the tastes were growing so wildly. So I was in a really good position to get the right photographer to shoot the right thing, just like you would in a magazine, but uh, over a huge spectrum of um, subject matter. So that's how yeah, I it's, came it's, to it. It's kind of interesting in that the, the, the roots of your, your career are rooted in, in a tradition of, of narrative in terms of the photo story, mm-hmm. and yours is more rooted in the, sort of the, the individual image yes, and how the market for photography... Has, has changed and continues to change, but it's very interesting how in the course of, you know, 40, 30, 30 or 40 years that it became sort of a, um, the, the heart of photography was rooted primarily in, in magazine, in individual in magazine work in terms of a story and a narrative, and then eventually changed into the single image, you know, and now it's primarily revolves around sort of the portrait, you know, in terms of celebrity. But I'm wondering, you know, in your collaboration with each other, how sort of the that sort of transition uh, has impacted your work, not only individually, but, but together. Well, you know, I've I've part of part of building a career is reinventing yourself um, at certain times in your in your in your uh, commitment to making photographs. And um, what's wonderful that what Charlie has brought to the table for me is the opportunity to collaborate with somebody on a regular basis to really build that narrative, which you discussed, into our photographs going forward. Um, Being an individual photographer can be challenging at times because you you lack the um, input from your peers and from your um, um, your um, immediate uh, um, people that you're working with because it's a re- it's a very individual thing being a photographer, unlike doing uh, motion where you're collaborating with numerous people who are bringing something interesting to the table which help you grow what your 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 vision is mm. um, so that's that's one of the things that's made it so rewarding working with Charlie is having that collaboration um, I wouldn't entirely agree with what you said though about the the sort of demise of storytelling um, the as a, an editor I'd take it one step further back the job of the editor was uh, I always said that the, a photo editor edits before they lift up the phone. That's the, the that's the mm-hmm. editing because for any magazine and for any any story that you've read that you're trying to illustrate, even though you might only be able to illustrate it in the one portrait, it's up to the editor to decide in whose voice that portrait will be drawn or that portrait will be told. And that's what a photo editor is. That's that's 
deciding whether it is Mary Ellen Mark's yeah. voice that you want representing that person or whether it's Robert Maxwell's voice or whether it's a student that you met three weeks ago who has this amazing way of making everyone look profoundly peaceful or profoundly happy or whatever it is, whatever attribute each individual photographer's voice has. So you're still telling a story. You might encapsulate in one story and maybe, I mean, in one picture and maybe another on the turn and maybe another on the table of contents. Yeah. But you're still, um, you're being just more succinct about it. You don't have the 12 pages that Seth's father had in Life magazine. But you still have to cram the magazine's idea and the writer's ideas about the about the story and the, the person that they're writing about into that one picture. Yeah. And you see the role of the editor is, is a collaboration between the editor and the, and the photographer. Right? Or is it not just hiring someone to do a job or well, I I was a uh, I was I always felt it was a little bit more subtle um, than that. The collaboration is sometimes in the well, what props should we use stage, but essentially my um, motto as an editor was always that the job is to hire the person who cannot help but take the picture that you want. Mm-hmm. That you have to know that person's job uh, there style and their attributes and the way in which they photograph and the way in which they approach people so well that while you can't exactly pre-visualize the picture you can tell you know um, you can be confident of the attributes that that picture will have so if you're good enough at that part of it you really don't need to tell people to do too much Mm -hmm. you might say don't photograph him in the kitchen but but apart from that, you're not going to have to say to give them much more. Right. What's it because because you just let them put it together from there. And how are you assessing that when you have not worked with a photographer before? You're looking at their work. You may have an opportunity to meet them in person or converse with them over the phone, and you're trying to quantify that that value. So how do you how do you sort of? I think it just that? comes as a result of seeing. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of photographers work I um, the I always said I don't look at portfolios I read a portfolio I can read a portfolio to see what it is that that is going to be the likely outcome you can see attributes in people's work that they can't even see themselves and I'll very briefly tell the story about a photographer who should remain nameless who uh, uh, one of my associates one of my juniors when I was at a magazine wanted to uh, um, a sign, and I said, "Beware, beware of the black triangle." And they did, didn't know what I meant. And I said, "Look, look at his portfolio. Going in every picture, there's one area that is a shaded area, and it's always triangular. And it must be in the lights the guy used, and the black flags, and the this and that and the other." And um, he, they, the, my my associate said, "Well, I'll, uh, we're going to shoot him in the bathroom because that's where the, the guy does his writing." Sure enough, the picture came in, and there was a black shadow mark running from the guy's shoulder all the way down. So you couldn't even see it was a bathroom. And it was like, there you go, the black triangle came home to roost. You know? but that, and that's very exaggerated. But that sort of thing is present in... You can tell what a ph- photographer... He should be able to pre-visualize not exactly the composition, but often very the composition as well. You know, mm-hmm. you you... You know it because you know Mary Ellen Mark's work. If I said to you, 
Marianne's going to photograph Seth, you'd, you'd immediately get a, a picture, well, of magazine photo editor knows it in Marianne Mark's case and in the case of 800 other photographers. Mm. Because that's their job. That's what they've been assimilating. They've been assimilating that same information on that same level about photographers, and they can do it on the basis of one look at their portfolio. Yeah. And now it's a website. It's rare that you actually see a physical portfolio, and I'm amazed. And I, 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 I'm sure you have too at the way people evaluate these websites, and they match you up with the right project that suits your style that's being presented on the website. It's rare that I get a project that is off the wall in terms of mm. not being appropriate for me. So people are pretty visually savvy. They seem to be able to assess people's work and you know match the right person up with the with the project. How is the way that people choose photographers, particularly with, with the use of the web primarily rather than the printed portfolio, change the way that you, you do business and get people aware of, of your presence? Well, it's, a, it's, it's much faster. When people are on the web looking for a photographer, they're really ready to work. They're really ready to shoot. Um, so things move quickly once you receive that email or that phone call. Um, it's rare you meet people anymore. Everything is so electronic that deliveries are electronic. You never go into anybody's office anymore. Mm -hmm. um, nobody's got any time for lunch. Uh, things have changed. It's, it's very fast moving. And a lot of international clients come through the Internet. The Internet has opened up the world to me, at least, mm. I get easily as much work from Germany, uh, Amsterdam, England, France, as I do from the U.S. And everything is electronic payment now. And I very rarely go to the bank anymore. Mm. Basically, you're lucky if you get dressed these days. You know? <laughs> it used to be the relationships was a real big part of the business. Not only your your, your first time client, mm -hmm. but your second, yeah. you know, yeah. the, the repeat business. So, how do you maintain those lines of sort of communication, those relationships, if you don't have the opportunity to actually periodically meet someone in person to reinforce yeah. that yeah. that connection? I think that's more important in editorial. Um, it, the and for those photographers who actively want to pursue editorial, I think you still, it is still worth trying to meet those magazine editors, and I bet they do a bit more of that than mm -hmm. most of our clients. We have a few editorial clients, but but uh, they're mostly abroad now. And the the a lot of the editorial clients are um, freelance freelance um, photo editors or art directors that are working at home mm. and they are they have a couple of different magazines that they they manage. Well that's what you found more for the trade magazines but not for the big national magazines, right? Yeah, I would say that's more oriented towards trade. Mm -hmm. And you guys are also doing a good amount of work for stock. Yes. And so tell me about that because you know you guys have been doing that for quite a while and it's changed. A oh, lot, mm -hmm. in oh, the yeah. last twenty years. So tell oh, us how, yeah, what, you know, what it was like when you first entered the field, and what it's like now 
and how you have sort of negotiated now, especially you know currently because of the economic situations and the yeah. you know the different contracts that keep, that keep changing in terms of the relationship between the stock agency and the photographer. Well, it, when I first entered into it, which I entered into it seriously in about two thousand and four. You'd had a contract with FPG since the mid nineties, right? Yes, but. But that was it just always never took. <clears throat> yeah. no. Uh, what 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 I was doing then was flipping assignment work into stock, which mm-hmm. was very common. Um, very few people were actually self-producing um, because yeah. in those early days, uh, stock was still considered um, an add-on. It wasn't a primary. Yeah, except for the real uh, a really small a, hardcore of. Group of people, people who are now millionaires. <laughs> <laughs> they were ahead of the curve. They were fantastic. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until the early uh, 2000s where I started to self-assign and self-produce. And it was not a very crowded field. Uh, it was long before what they call third-party providers appeared on the scene. Um, Getty Images was my... Um, marketing wing of my 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 uh, um, stock library, and it was it had major marketing muscle worldwide, and it was not a crowded field. So it was the classic case where less was more, fewer photos, but very well targeted photos. Um, allowed you to create an extremely lucrative portfolio. Uh, where the big change took place was a few years ago when the third-party providers appeared and the floodgates opened on the Getty Images site you're specifically referring to. Yeah. And, and um, other major sites, but mainly my experience has been with, with Getty Images. Um, and the, the market's become extremely um, crowded, which uh, whenever things get too crowded, uh, um, it's, it's uh, um, you, you're basically getting buried in a mountain of material that's constantly being added to, to the mix. When I first joined um, Tony Stone, uh, there were only 70,000 images in the Tony Stone collection, mm. on the back of which he still made 200 million <laughs> a year. Um, but it was very, there was a very uh, tight edit going into, but that's because they were making dupes. They were making four by five dupes mm. of every single image. Um, and now I think Getty Images is adding between 70,000 and 100,000 images a, uh, a month. So uh, you can see how. When you've shot something, there is more material being being piled on the top very rapidly. On the, it says on you have to strategize around that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, before they started to market on the web, it was all done by catalog, mm-hmm. and the time to market for the photographer was a year, year and a half sometimes, where your photos would get chosen for the catalog. By the, catalog, by the time the catalog was laid out, printed, and then distributed to these clients worldwide, it could be a year mm-hmm. uh, before your photos are actually 
available for sale. So that was one of the reasons why it didn't make sense to make stock your primary source of, of income. Because there's too much of a lag time. Yeah. Yes, because you had to invest in the production and wait at least 18 months. Yeah. Um, but that's changed returns, yeah. Now the turnaround can be, you know, 30 days sometimes. We actually, d- we shouldn't tell Getty Images because you don't want it to go to their head, but we actually uh, photographed something over a weekend and by 12 days later, the following Thursday, it was on the web. Wow. Which is incredible. So that like was, I said, don't tell Getty Images. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to That was to like too a perfect headed. storm for Yes, it was just very good timing for everything. Everything came together on that. But you guys are, are self-producing stuff rather yeah. than yes. like you said before. So in terms of, you know, there's, that's a lot of investment of time. And yeah. how do you guys determine this is an image that is likely to sell, particularly with the glut of images that, that are out there? How do you come well, to a decision well, in terms of what you're I do? should answer that's that. That's Charlie's expertise. The, you know, because I, I went, when I went, I went to Tony Stone and then stayed through till it was fully Getty Images. Uh, essentially, and uh, I had access to the sales figures for nine years. And that was from in the in times of huge expansion. That's when Getty Images acquired the Image Bank and FPG mm-hmm. and um, yeah, Photonica, etc. So I had a very uh, very keen awareness on all sorts of levels of what was selling. It was my job to spend a great deal of money every year creating images that would sell. So that was really what I had to do. Now, so I um, have, I was trained and trained other people in the editing for uh, saleability. And that is a, that's something we were talking about that I'm trying to communicate to the students at Art Center, the communicative Possibilities integral in a, in a picture. Um, that's really a s- skill to know which pictures are going to be used for communication, which pictures are going to be used for decoration. And actually, they both have markets, but they're kind of different markets. Um, and I do use the creative research techniques that we used, that everyone uses, which is I watch the television. He can't believe what I watch sometimes, but I watch the television too because my eyes are out on sticks. I sit with Seth at airports and count the amount of briefcases that go by and say, only one, I've only seen one briefcase, but I've seen 20 computer bags. Mm. No more briefcases in any business shoot. <laughs> you know, you just have to keep very, very current with what's, what people really look like, what people are really doing. Um, I read a lot. I look, I do a lot of research on the web. To just be in tune with uh, what's in pe- what's in the air, what's in people's yeah. minds, and trend-driven. It's very. Yeah. I also very very much look at um, mm. what other people are not shooting, mm. because uh, the there's a very strategic game to play in terms of uh, it's not only what you shoot, but when you shoot it and um, you des- we decide what we shoot based on strange things like. Mm. Where pictures come up in a search order, and so if I and how I keyword were uh, images so that I can make sure that they come up in front of the client, and I can, you know, I have insider information. I actually know 
I can put a date on all those Getty images uh, number sequences. Yeah. So if I do a search and I see that they haven't added to that since mm, 2005, I think, ah, well, no one's shooting that, so why don't we put our pictures on top of that? You bring up an interesting point, and this, a lot of people are, get fixated about the content of the image, mm-hmm. but the key, issue of keywording. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's crucial. That's, yeah. How, yeah, so tell yeah. me about how crucial is that that the photographer really be dutiful in terms of keywording their images when they submit it to the, in order for it to, to come up when people type in those words. Well, you know, you can back that up just to mm-hmm. the photograph first, and you can look at that photograph and say, how am I going to keyword this? And if you can't come up with some viable keywords, then there's no point in presenting that photograph. So it's all about the keywords. How are people going to find that image? And and, uh, that's where we have a real division of labor, where Charlie's responsible for the keywording because she's really, really familiar with that area. Um, and you will agree that keywording is, is critical. Yes, because if you're uh, going to shoot a businessman, um, if the only keyword you can put on it is business or businessman, you're you dead. will never get... There will be... 5,000 Five, images. Mm, 500,000 images <laughs> will come up now. Um, and I act, this is actually sort of my career coming all the way back again to be the photo researcher. I can put myself in the photo researcher's, um, the photo researcher's shoes. Mm-hmm. And I'll try, as soon as I see that there are 500,000 pictures, I'll immediately identify something else, another element that I want in the picture and use that as a keyword to search. So I'll pretend I'm looking for a picture. And uh, so what you need is you need something else. You, you need to create a picture that you know you can put another keyword p- uh, besides businessman. So either it's communication or it's technology or it's confidence or it's meeting or it's mm. you imply, you find a way of implying an emotion or a concept to that picture uh, because otherwise it will never be found. Yeah. What's, but, sorry. What's the life of an image now? I mean, if you're able to turn around the images that quickly and they're being Good consumed question. that much more. It used to be that, you know, life of an image was average about three or four years. No, Is that still the case? It was in the late 90s, it was five to seven years. Um, through till about 2004 and things started really speeding up. Now, we still um, make sales. Seth had a picture which had a good four or five year, uh, quite a four or five year run. Still occasionally makes sales, George. Oh, George still makes Um, a lot of sales. And then pictures that are, um, pictures that are not being buried by other people's content. Um, can have at least a three-year run. I've got, we've got stuff that was shot in 2006 that's still making sales because it's, an unf- it's not on everyone's must-shoot list. Hmm. Um, the um, areas such as you know, Hispanic businessmen and etc. are, are con- going to be buried very rapidly, but slightly off-kilter subject matter that's still conceptual um, has longer shelf life than than a business. So what do you what do you mean conceptual? Can you give me an example of what that would mean? Well, how would you do, do define that term? 
Um, most of most images are uh, searched by the concept, searched by concept. So, um, all right, here, a conceptual image would be uh, an image actually of a lion, say, mm-hmm. because that would be searched by the con- that would be searched by the word proud, pride, proud, um, and. Because that's how, if I was shooting a picture of a, a lion, I'd make sure he was looking noble and not scary. Because I would want to illustrate, uh, I'd be illustrating the concept of strength. I would not be illustrating lion. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I wouldn't bother with his whole body and I wouldn't bother whether it was an African lion or an Indian lion or whatever lion. I'd be, I'd be illustrating uh, the lion as a symbol of power and strength and pride. And that's that type. This is not a wildlife picture. This is a conceptual picture mm-hmm. using the lion to symbolize. Um, in the way that for years and years, thank goodness, the, the, the sort of symbolic language goes in and out of style. Um, when I first started in the business in the mid 90s, um, accuracy and being on track and on target was always the dart in the dartboard. Yeah. Right. It joined the must-not-shoot list in, in the late 90s. I saw an ad a couple of days ago, which was a dart and a dartboard. It's like, oh, no, that language has come back again. <laughs> so, and in the mid-90s, it was always the, um, the Doric columns outside the bank, always shot from slightly below. Yeah. And that was always strength and security and um, <laughs> institution and reliability and that went out of style and I don't think that's ever coming back so. <laughs> so how has this insight that she's brought to the table changed or or influenced the way that you, you shoot? Well it's huge um, for starters we're working all the time uh, because of this insight uh, we're motivated to constantly be in production so if we're not in if we just finished a project we're in post-production at the same time, we're, we're already working on a, the pre-production for the next project. So it's constantly multitasking. Um, I, th- I think it's also, I mean, I think Seth has really got it now. Um, the, uh, part, part, of the, um, part of the thinking in this way means you actually edit out work before you've done it. So Seth will say... Uh, we, you know, we had a friend who had a baby, and Seth would be really, oh, this is great, let's go shoot the baby. And I will go, and what's the point? <laughs> and we'll work out what the point is, and we'll take two props, a doctor's jacket and a, something else, a stethoscope or something, and suddenly we're shooting... We're not just producing cute baby pictures. We're producing mm-hmm. something a little bit more targeted and this and that and the other. And Seth has got to be that way now, where I've said, well, we're just going to do them. We'll do this in the studio. And he'll go, well, what does that mean? And what, you know, it's very irritating. <laughs> He's second-guessing me. <laughs> a little information's dangerous. But also, we'll do, but it's very useful when we're out together um, because we'll go places um, to shoot what we call freebies, where we're not setting it up, but I know that there's a picture in there somewhere, and we have two pairs of eyes looking for it. Hmm. So I'll, we'll, we'll be around, and I'll go, it's here, it's here, come over here. <laughs> the picture's over here, and we'll... But he's, he's getting pretty good oh, now. I love um, the observed time. That's what, one of the things that 
are a throwback to my father's influences where we looked at photographs all the time. Mm. Basically grew up looking at pictures. And um, the, the style of going into a situation cold and observing what's going on and extracting the image that has the narrative that tells the story in that, that one image is, is what I instinctually gravitate towards. Mm. And I've learned a great respect for that. Um, whereas we used to go out, and I would try, and I would try before we went out, and say, "Well, we've got to get a picture of this and this and this." And, and the dollar. now um, I found that actually, uh, if I let go of Seth, and it takes about twenty minutes, and then he's in a different place. I mean, I can, I, I then don't have to talk to him for a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. And actually, him taking over the observational process is really necessary. And I just have to step back and, and kind of be confident that at the end of the day, it's almost like as long as I've wound him up and put him in the right, <laughs> the right place, <laughs> I can let him go after that. And that's actually been a great discipline for me yeah. because I'm very bossy by nature. I have to really step back. So, so tell me, each of you, what do you feel has been the greatest gift? that you've received from the other as a result of your collaboration with each other in relation to, to the work that you do? What do you think you've, you've gained as a result of working together that you wouldn't have gained if you had just been working by yourself? I'll go first, can I? Sure. Um, I've gained how hard taking photographs is. <laughs> <laughs> I've earned a, a great respect for um, uh, shooting. The uh, I always thought that oh it's just because I never bothered and you know if I really you know got my I could get my mind around the technical side well actually you know even if I could I need about ten more years and maybe twenty before I catch up with Seth and it's so I've got a huge respect uh, for that he always Seth is very relaxed guy and he always made it look very easy. But literally, we went out a couple of weekends ago and both shot. And I've got the do it the do it for you camera, mm-hmm. you know, the G10, and he's shooting. And we were in a very difficult; things weren't easy to shoot. And he came back with pictures, and I came back with rubbish. And I'll never catch up. I will never catch up. So that's been very interesting for mm-hmm. me. <laughs> Much more respect. And <laughs> <laughs> how about you? Well. You know, Charlie's clearly the smartest person I've ever known. (laughs) (laughs) Good boy. And I've known her an awful long time, and I've worked with her in different environments worldwide and have tremendous faith, trust, and inspiration every time we get involved with a project. Um, Whatever she brings to the table, she always brings it at the right time. Uh, she's cool under fire. She doesn't get all stressed out. Um, she she uh, always seems to be able to um, um, establish the, the, the direction and the perimeters of a project. She never leaves me hanging. Um, um, I'm very fortunate to be able to wake up every morning 
And if I want to take a meeting, I can take it right there in that. <laughs> <laughs> I think actually we've also found, though, very interestingly, that um, there's a very fluid uh, way we have of working that we can hand off to each other almost wordlessly and seamlessly. So I can tell if we have talent, I can tell if he needs a private moment, I can very easily step in and take over the energy and crack the jokes and keep the talent moving and he can step when he's ready he can step back in and I can disappear for a few minutes and take care of the next shot without bothering him about it. it's very it's now it's very seamless on camera when we're actually shooting mm -hmm. and the preparation and the post I mean we have a what may look like a bizarre system whereby I edit he processes, I keyword, he uploads, I metadata. I mean, the pictures sort of bounce between our computers a number of times, but it's each of us doing what we do best. Mm -hmm. But funnily enough, we can both, except for the shooting, we can kind of both do each, other, each other's jobs when we're really under pressure. Mm -hmm. So, Well, that's, that's the other thing that allows us to work together so seamlessly is uh, the whole uh, digital world. Mm, yeah. um, the computers are so efficient now. Um, we have become our own color lab. Uh, we're on location shooting, and we're already talking about color temperatures and how we're going to process this material, and is, do we want a color-negative look? Or, you know, Do we want it pale? Do we want it saturated? Mm. Um, this gives us tremendous control. Mm. So it has allowed us to to continue to produce regularly um, <clears throat> and with a with a realistic uh, working budget based on uh, you know today's real economy. Yes, I and mean, we've been I and mean, when we started this when I left Getty Images three years ago, I was still very much the boss. I was in. I was boss lady, and I had been for a long time. And I had to have someone do location scouts for me. And I had the uh, uh, the producer set up the castings, and I couldn't do anything myself. I was really good at making other people do it. Um, and in the last three years, we brought every function in house. And Seth has, does all the processing. He does all the retouching. Mm -hmm. I mean, three years ago, you'd send that stuff out. Now we do absolutely every step of the way, which means. The editing of our labor, the knowing what pictures not to bother to take, knowing what when not even to go into the studio because the ideas aren't strong enough, and then the final edit um, when we have shot, we are very finely tuned because anything other than that is wasted time. We haven't got time to waste. Yeah, it's gold to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the last question I ask, and each of you have have your own say in this, is that I ask each person to suggest or recommend another photographer for our listeners to go and explore. And so the question to each of you is, who would that be for you and why? Uh, oh, what, for you to explore or no, for, for the... For, for the, the listeners to explore. So uh -huh. This doesn't have to be your favorite photographer. Or, you know, It's just someone you think would be interesting that people might not you know, be aware of. I've come mm -hmm. across. Mm -hmm. um, that's quite difficult how to about, uh, How about your... Um, um, fine art photographer who's exhibits at Riverside Museum and uh, Alia. 
Alia. Alia Malley. Wonderful. She's still a student at Riverside. She's a wonderful photographer. She still shoots big camera, 810, color nag. Um, Her work is award-winning. It's really tremendous. Um, She's she's a wonderful. Yeah, she's like a step away from, you know, Karen Halverson. Um, She's quite like Alia. Her name's Alia Malley, M-A-L-O-E-Y. She's wonderful. Uh, You know, I would say um, an interesting photographer to get involved with might be someone like Jeff Dunas. I think Jeff Dumas has not been mentioned, so yeah, that would be I a think, good idea. I think Jeff is fascinating. Um, Great variety. A variety. Talk about reinventing. You know, over the years, he's just got involved with one new project after the next. He's very entrepreneurial. He knows how to follow through. He gets his work published. He's a very good lesson for young photographers. This is this just in a uh, very quickly. He um, knew the guys that ran the House of Blues back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And he managed to uh, ask his friend if he could just be in the corridor out between the dressing room and the stage. And he would take one or two frames of these huge blues guys when, you know, he would choose carefully who it was going to be. He never asked for a session. He never asked for more of their time. He would literally take a couple of frames before they went on stage, but in the most beautiful portrait setup. And um, it did an absolutely wonderful series. I mean, 20, 30, 40 pictures. That was a beautiful book. And being Jeff, not only got me to give him 12 pages in a magazine that I was working for at the time, but also got a book. And it was sold at the House of Blues. And he had the ability to see an opportunity to not act like a prima donna, but, you know, and demand the time with Mm -hmm. these people, but to get every little piece lined up and followed through. And he had a beautiful book at the end of it. Well, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for another episode. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com. Post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com or on the Candid Frame fan group on facebook.com. Till next time, this is Avarian X Borello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com photocastnetwork.com